Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Take a dose of every day How am I supposed to stay In a world built on empty ways And the lessons of all the rage Get yourself something to write with And start listening to everything I could find about the smallmouth bass And how it pertains to you, the angler So let's get started what I'm going to talk about today is phylogeny, description of smallmouth bass, distribution and location, feeding behavior, reproduction, commercial importance, tackle gear, fishing methods, and flies. I believe that's in the correct order, but after looking at this for so long, I don't know. I hope you enjoy this one, and if you're fishing for smallies this time of year, you might want to change your mind and fish for something else. Personally, we're targeting shad, and it's been shadness madness out the wazoo for over a month. I couldn't tell you what day it is. I have not had a day off in a long time. The wife being out of town doesn't help. Uh, a lot of eight-hour, a lot of four-hour trips, a lot of four-hour and then four hours. I have a fly order I've needed to send out for a week, and I haven't even had time because I'm just exhausted. I should be on the couch, drinking a beer, catching up on DVR, but I will start this and eat a late dinner tonight. 
Start of my notes. The Algonquian Indians call the smallmouth bass Akigan, spelled A-C-H-I-G-A-N, which means the one that fights. With all the traits of an aristocrat and ruffian, this fish stands head and tall above any freshwater game fish. There are some words you might pick up a lot on in this podcast. Littoral, that is with an L, you perverts. Littoral is, uh, I believe, it is the edge or shoreline of a lake and river. I'm pretty sure I had that defined later. And the second word is patadromous, P-O-T-A-M-O-D-R-O-M-O-U-S. Fish migrations are usually shorter, typically from lake to stream or vice versa for spawning purposes. Let's get into the meat and bones of this podcast. And if you're going to write a smallmouth paper for your college class or whatever, you can quote me, but my quotes are not mine. Kingdom. And remember, this is King Philip came over from Great Spain. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. You should know that from... Six years of listening to this podcast, King Philip ordered fantastic soup, generally speaking, something like that. Kingdom, Animalia, they're animals. Phylum, Chordata, they have a chordate, a nerve running up and down their spine. Class, Actinopterygii, ray fin fishes, and having done this for a lot of years, I can read Actinopterygii and not miss. Pronounce it, spelled A-C-T-I-N-O-P-T-E-R-Y-G-I-I. The order is Persiforms, perch-like fishes, family, and remember, families for animals end in I-D-A-E, or hominids, hominidae, H-O-M-O-N-I-D-A-E. Smallmouth bass are centrarchids, family centrarchidae, subfamily, don't have that, genus, Micropterus. Species Dolomieu, D-O-L-O-M-I-E-U. Also, I guess this would be subspecies, the northern smallmouth bass, M. dolomiui, dolomiui. Nisoho smallmouth bass, M. dolomiui, velox. These were first described by a gentleman named Lacepidae, L-A-C with a... Over the E, a P, an E with a going the other way. In 1802, Micropterus, micros meaning small, and terus meaning wing. They mean small winged in Latin. And we all know that from Systema Nature, one of our favorite books by one of the great weirdos of science. I'm totally blanking. He's buried in, in the abbey. Ah, he's Swedish. He went to Lapland. This is embarrassing. Gosh, it's on the tip of my tongue. I'm just so tired. Um, I'm going to sit here, folks, until I can remember it. Sistema Nature by the guy who made his name funny. He called plants pissabed because they were yellow and they looked like urine. We know that from Bill Bryson. I want to say Antoine van Leeuwenhoek, but he's the one that discovered cells in cork and called them cells because they looked like monk cells in a monastery. Who's our Swedish friend that went to Lapland and, and looked at stuff? Let's just keep going. All right. Physical characteristics and descriptions. Oh, I'm not even there yet. Uh, Dolomieu, named after M. Dolomieu, a French mineralogist and friend of Lesepidae. 
Two subspecies, uh, M. dolomieu of the Great Lakes and adjacent regions, and the Nusoho, which I already mentioned both of these, smallmouth of northwestern Arkansas, northeastern Oklahoma, and southwestern Missouri. Physical characteristics. If you want to get down and dirty, if you cannot tell the difference between a largemouth, smallmouth, shoal bass, spotted bass, Guadalupe bass, nice bass, striped bass, these will tell you the differences. Dorsal spines, a total of 9 to 11. Dorsal soft rays, a total of 13 to 15. Anal spines, 10 to 11. Vertebrae, 31 to 32. They are found 47 degrees north to 34 degrees north with a maximum length of 69 centimeters. The maximum published weight is 11.9 pounds. Fish over seven years are rare. The maximum reported age is 26 years. North American distribution is the St. Lawrence Great Lakes system, Hudson Bay and Mississippi River basins from southern Quebec in Canada to North Dakota and south to northern Alabama and eastern Oklahoma in the USA. Introduced into many countries for sport fishing. We need the buzzer. Bad, bad stuff. Several countries report adverse ecological impact after introduction beginning in 1873. And you know what's bugging me? I still can't remember. Um, I'm totally blanking on this. I still have Antoine van Leeuwenhoek in my head. Systema nature. This is the father of modern nomenclature. <laughs> Carl Linnaeus, duh. My goodness. Again, it's 7 o'clock, and I'm, this is my first downtime since I got up at 6.45 today. Uh, I should know that. My zoology professor in college can slap me across the face. That reminds me, I also gave the lads at Fletcher's Boathouse permission to tar and feather me. This podcast is the science. This is fact. This is information you cannot argue. You can't say, they don't have 9 to 11 dorsal spines. They got 87. I saw it once under a bridge in Montana. Like, no, man, this is legit science. It's a fact. And that proved me wrong when I used science to say the shad three weeks ago would drop back in the river due to cold water temperatures. The fact that their lowest spawning temperature is about 52 degrees. Well, the river hovered just below 52, and you know what? The shad didn't go anywhere. People had 100 fish days. The same day that a gentleman caught a 72-pound blue catfish above Chain Bridge, and today somebody caught a rainbow trout at Chain Bridge. Crazy, crazy stuff. So these fish are considered one of the worst introduced species of all time. They are like the swimming version of kudzu. Uh, average size can differ depending on where they are found. Those found in American waters tend to be larger due to the longer summers, which allow them to eat and grow for a longer period of time. Their habitat plays a significant role in the color, weight, and shape. The smallmouth bass has a moderately compressed, elongate body. Sexual maturity varies throughout its range, which is related to latitude. At age two in the south for males, at age four in the north for males, age three to four in central locations, age four to five for me for females. Smallmouth bass exhibit sexual dimorphism. 
females are generally smaller than males. The males tend to have average two pounds, while females average from three to six pounds. There are three spines in the anal fin. This is all out of order, but it works. And nine to 11 spines in the dorsal fin redundancy. Body is olive green above, yellow white below. We know that as counter shading with eight to 16 dark brown vertical bars on the side. A key defined characteristic to separate them from other fish you may be catching. The mouth is large with the posterior edge of the maxilla extending beneath the eye. So that lip doodad they have, that would go. It's not a lip. It's a bone. It's their maxilla. It goes below and behind their eye. The upper jaw extends back only in line with the middle of the eye. In their mouth, fine brush-like teeth on both jaws. Those are known as villiform teeth, V-I-L-L-I-F-O-R-M. They're palatines and vomer bones as well. Lower pharyngeal teeth are long, narrow padded, numerous, fine, and uniform in size. An average adult length ranges from 30 to 35 centimeters or 15 to 20 inches. Some populations have small tooth patches on their tongues. They can be coppery brown above with greenish brown sides, seldom yellow. The smallmouth's coloration and hue may vary according to environmental variables such as water clarity or prey diet. That may give them darker vertical bars or bands. Remember, flamingos are pink because of their diet. If they were in zoos and not fed pink um, dyes, basically, or, or pink supplements, they would be white. Yes. Three dark bars radiate from the eye on the cheek and gill cover. Very obvious when you catch a smallmouth. The dorsal fin is not as deeply notched as the largemouth bass. Its eyes are usually red or orange. A four to five pound fish is considered a trophy. This is pretty cool. River versus lake smallmouth. You're going to find a lot of that in here. River water smallmouth that live in dark water tend to be rather torpedo shaped and very dark brown to be more efficient for feeding in that environment. Whereas lakeside smallmouth bass that live in sandy areas tend to be a light yellow brown to adapt to the environment in a defensive state and are more oval shaped. The smallmouth bass has a broad powerful tail, powerful tail that is. They have excellent hearing. They have excellent vision. So think about these things when you're targeting fish. Can you hear yourself wading through the water? If so, they can hear you too. They might be able to see you too. You want to be stealthy. Smallmouth bass have a savage instinct to kill its prey with a single blow. The smallmouth comes close to being the perfect predator. How can you distinguish them from a largemouth? Well, you can go back and listen to the largemouth podcast, take notes, make a Venn diagram, listen to this podcast, add to the Venn diagram, what's in the middle, what's on the sides, that's how you can tell. The best characteristic to distinguish a smallmouth bass from a largemouth bass is the position of the maxillary or large flap at the posterior end of the upper jaw. With the fish's mouth closed, the maxillary will reach, but not obviously, extend beyond the eye. Hence the name smallmouth. 
In largemouth bass, the maxillary always, always, always extends past the back edge of the eye. So now you know how to distinguish a smallmouth from a largemouth. You need to know where to find them. These fish are freshwater benthopelagic, open deep water of temperatures 50 degrees Fahrenheit to 91.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Pay attention to these temperatures. That will difference you between a scumbag angler and an ethical angler. Smallmouth will congregate near warm springs in the winter. The lethal temperature for smallmouth bass is around freezing. You fish for them below freezing, you're going to kill them. Good job. You got a fish picture with a grip and grin, and you just killed a fish. These fish become inactive at 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So let's not fish for these when the water is, say, 52 degrees or lower. Don't be that guy. We don't give warm water species the same um, tender loving care as you do trout and other salmonids. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. When the weather gets colder and the water temperature drops below 60 degrees Fahrenheit, smallmouth will migrate in search of deeper pools in which they enter a semi-hibernation state, moving sluggishly and feeding very little until the warm season returns. So in the winter, yeah, you can run a drift boat down the Potomac and find smallmouth bass that are huddling in the bottom in some deep hole. They're there because they can spend the least amount of energy to stay alive. They might feed once every few weeks. So, ooh, a fly. I'm going to eat that. Well, they're not getting any nutrition and all that energy they have been retaining to stay alive. They just spent fighting you. And then you toss them back exhausted and energy-less. Way to go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The migration patterns of smallmouth have been tracked, and it is not unusual for a smallmouth to travel 12 miles in a single day in a stream, creek, or river. The overall migration can exceed 60 miles. These fish require a pH of 5.7 to 9. They require more than 6 parts per million dissolved oxygen. These fish will die... When oxygen is at one part per million or water at 68 to 77 degrees. So, when you see people fishing in the heat for smallmouth, it's fun. I grew up doing it, but now I know things and I'm going to treat them a little differently. These fish seek dark, deep areas when water is 59 to 68 degrees. They live in rivers and streams, lakes and ponds, and they can tolerate periodic turbidity although too much turbidity and saltation will reduce populations. These fish live and hunt along structure, structure, and structure. They prefer to be behind rocks where the current lacks. Adults 
near the edge of the current during the day. Adelton Rivers may remain in one pool all season. So for the guys that pick them up and throw them in your live well to take pictures of hours later or to weigh them in and dump them back into another spot, well, now that fish is homeless. It doesn't know where it is. It doesn't know the currents. It doesn't know where to hide. Every fish has a certain escape route pre-planned. Now that fish is in a new environment and it doesn't have that. It's vulnerable. It might die. You just killed a fish. Mazel tov. They prefer drop-offs in lakes. In deeper water, smallies may become less shelter-oriented and more active with lower light levels. These fish are inactive at night. They prefer to rest on substrate of lakes overnight. Smallmouth bass prefer to live over hard bottoms. Smallmouth bass have well-defined home ranges that are more restrictive in size in summer and winter than in spring and fall. In larger streams, lakes, and reservoirs at northern latitudes, smallmouth bass migrate substantial distances to overwintering habits. Does that make sense? These fish may migrate into tributaries in times of thermal instability seeking cooler water in summer. So let's go fish the... The tributary mouths for some smallmouth, well, they're in there because they want air conditioning, not heat. And they are in there because they don't have the energy to digest food and chase food because it's just too damn hot. And if you're targeting them because they're in there for that reason, that's a no-no. Smallmouth bass in stream environments demonstrate homing behavior after either upstream or downstream displacement and have strong attachment to home pools. They like where they live. They don't like when you move them up and down river, like I mentioned earlier. Homing continued. Smallies will return to home area when dispersed or removed to another distant location. However, they may establish new homes and stay put. Smallmouth bass displaced between 0.8 and 14 kilometers by tournament anglers return to their home ranges after seven days. How much energy do you think that damn fish had to spend over seven days to swim 14 kilometers? I know I'm getting grumpy, but I just spent the last month calling the cops on every scumbag angler on the river. And today, these guys not only used a cast net and dip net to get live herring, they then used the live herring to catch a 26-inch striper and put it on a stringer. I had the cops there within two minutes of them. Well, I called. It was about two minutes that I saw the striper after they used the cast net. And then I called and said they have a striper on their stringer out of season. And she's like, oh, they're dispatched. They'll be there in a moment. And uh, it took about a total of five minutes. I turned around, and the officers were there and busted those dudes. You don't do that on my river, folks. Preferred habitat has a gravel or rubble substrate, boulders, some shade and cover, along with deep pools for stream environments. They prefer clear flowing streams and rivers with rock, bedrock, and gravel bottoms and numerous riffles, and cool deep water of large clear reservoirs with boulders and gravel bottoms. In these waters, they are most active at 67 degrees to 72 degrees Fahrenheit and intolerant of silty, warm, and polluted water. 
Adults inhabit shallow, rocky areas of lakes, clear and gravel bottom runs, and flowing pools of rivers, cool flowing streams, and reservoirs fed by such streams. The smallmouth bass is found in clear water than the largemouth, especially streams, rivers, and the rocky areas, and stumps and also sandy bottoms of lakes and reservoirs. The smallmouth prefers cooler water temperatures than its cousin, the largemouth. It may be found in both still and running water. Because it is intolerant of pollution, the smallmouth bass is a good natural indicator of a healthy environment, though it can better adjust to changes in water condition than most trout species. These fish were first introduced outside of their native range with the construction of the Erie Canal in 1825. They were first introduced in 1834 when the Boston and Ohio Railroad employee transported approximately 20 fish from the Wheeling River in West Virginia to the Sino Canal Basin in Cumberland, Maryland. Introduced into a bunch of countries during the mid to late 19th century, smallmouth were transplanted via the nation's rail system to lakes and rivers throughout the northern and western United States as far as California. Shippers, that's shippers with a P, found that smallmouth bass were a hardy species that could be transported in buckets or barrels by rail, sometimes using the spigots from the railroad water tanks to aerate the fingerlings. They were introduced east of the Appalachians just before the Civil War and afterwards transplanted to the states of New England. Those fish have accents. You pick them up, they're like, where's your car? That hook was wicked sharp. Smallmouth bass were often introduced to northern rivers now too warm for native trout and slowly became a popular game fish with many anglers. They're equally adaptable to large, cool water impoundments and reservoirs. The smallmouth also spread far beyond its original native range. You know what? I still remember the first smallmouth I ever caught. We were on the Shenandoah South Fork. I don't really know where. My dad would just drive along these roads outside Front Royal, and he would turn down them and hope we'd come to the river. And I found a crankbait behind an old log cabin. I think I was taking a leak. I mean, why else would I have been back there? And there was this yellow crankbait, and I put it on, and uh, yeah, after like my second or third cast, I caught, you know, like seven-inch smallmouth. thought that was pretty cool. You could say I got hooked. Oh, that's so corny. What a cliche. Later, smallmouth populations also began began to decline after years of damage caused by overdevelopment and pollution, as well as a loss of river habitat caused by damming many formerly wild rivers to form lakes and reservoirs. In recent years, a renewed emphasis on preserving water quality and riparian habitat in the nation's rivers has and lakes together with the stricter management practices, eventually benefited smallmouth populations and has caused a resurgence in their popularity with anglers. Stocked in cool rivers and lakes throughout Canada and the United States. In Arizona, smallmouth bass reportedly, reportedly, there's no B in there, are responsible for eliminating or reducing some populations of native fishes. Smallmouth bass have been shown to eat smolts of Pacific salmonids, therefore posing a threat to these already declining species in the Columbia River. However, the revenue from anglers 
makes the local governments happy. So your local governments in the Pacific Northwest would rather you come to town and buy bait and gear and flies and rods because money is more important than salmon. However, if the salmon were to come back, you would make so much more money. I don't get it. I have cup to 35% of out. What does that say? Up to 35% of out migrating wild salmon. I don't know what that sentence means. Salmonids may not recognize smallmouth bass as potential predators and prey naively enhances success. Salmonids may not recognize. So they don't know what smallmouth are. It's just not in their brain. They haven't been there long enough. So they don't recognize them as predators. And uh, that's how they get eaten. They, they could eat them, but I guess they don't. Speculation that introduced smallmouth bass may have contributed to the demise of an isolated isolated population of trout perch, Percopsis omiscomyacus, in the Potomac River in Virginia and Maryland. If you go to the Virginia fish, it'll say um, extirpated from the Potomac River, the trout perch. Introduced predatory centrarchids are likely responsible for the decline of native randid frogs in California and for the decline of California tiger salamander and Bistema californense populations. The presence of smallmouth bass, along with other introduced piscivores, reduced the richness of native minnow communities in Adirondack lakes. So we all love fishing for these, but we don't really give a thought to just how destructive environmentally they are. Everyone's like, "Oh, the snakeheads are killing everything. They're they're eating, they're eating birds. They're eating your chihuahuas. They crawl on land." Well, we already discussed that previously in a podcast. It's all BS. They're not doing the damage that the large and smallmouth are doing to our river. And the blue cat are the worst perpetrators. Smallmouth hybridize with spotted bass when introduced together. They hybridize with native largemouth bass in the Squaw Reservoir in North Central Texas. They've hybridized with Guadalupe bass in Texas, compromising the Guadalupe bass's genetic diversity and integrity. The hybrid is female and is capable of back-crossing to the parental species. There appears to be more back-crossing to smallmouth bass than to Guadalupe bass. Again, these fish are patadromous. Two types of bass may exist, those that exhibit restricted movement patterns and others that exhibit more extensive movement patterns. Some bass may travel over 40 miles in the Great Lakes systems. Let's talk about growth and reproduction. If you've ever wanted to know where baby smallmouth come from, I'm going to tell you. Growth is a variable amongst latitude and habitat. Growth of smallies in lakes and reservoirs is faster than in rivers. Growth in larger streams is more rapid than in smaller streams. These fish grow faster in warmer months, earlier death in fish in the southern reservoirs. Growth rates are similar between the sexes, but intra-sex differences occur in parental males from northern lake and reservoir populations compared to southern populations. Growth does not begin until water temperature reaches 50 degrees to 57.2 degrees Fahrenheit. These fish prefer summer temperatures of 69.8 to 80.6 Fahrenheit. 
It requires three to five growing seasons, perhaps six seasons in small streams, for smallmouth bass to reach the legal harvestable size of 12 inches, depending on if that is a legal harvestable rule for your location. Habitats supporting high densities of prey, particularly small fish, likely increase growth of juvenile fish. Many potential smallmouth bass spawners do not actually spawn in a given year. Those that do, a small proportion produces most of the offspring. Not all nest-building males convince a female to spawn. Spawning occurs in spring depending on geographical locations, geographical locations and water temperatures. Spawning occurs from April through June when water temperatures range from 58 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Spawning occurs within the littoral zone, L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L, the shoreline area of large bodies of water, of lakes and near shore and flowing waters. Spawning in between on male, sorry, spawning is between one male and one female at a time. There's no gangbanging going on amongst these fish. Their nests are 0.9 to 0.3. Ah. Their nests are 0.3 to 0.9 meters deep and up to 7 meters deep. That is in the water, not the actual depth of the nest, in case you were confused. Nest construction takes from 4 to 48 hours, and the male may build several nests before finally setting on one for the remainder of spawning. Now, this all is going to decide whether you're a scumbag, unethical angler who wants the grip and grin, wants your clients on fish to make money, versus somebody that wants to protect the future generation of these fish and have more and bigger fish in the future. Areas of quiet water with very slow current, larger males spawn first, and multiple nestings may occur if early broods fail due to extreme high flows or cold fronts. Larger males tend to mate with larger, more fecund females. That means she's got a lot of eggs up in her. And account for highest production of free-swimming larvae and makes the most re-nesting attempts. During courtship, the male's iris turns bright red and the females develop a series of dark vertical bars against a lighter background. Spawning females are pale, light green, or yellowish with strongly mottled spots and bands. Since smallmouth bass are in the sunfish family, they are nest builders. So we can fish ethically for shad and stripers because they're open water spawners. It's different if you listen to what I'm going to say. They're centrarchids. They're sunfish. They are nest builders. The males build saucer-shaped nests that are about twice their body length in diameter. The nests may be found on sand, gravel, or rubble, with usually a boulder, overhead limb, log, stump, or bank nearby. Nest building usually occurs within 20 to 150 yards of where his nest was built in previous years. Nest building takes a lot of energy, especially when you're coming out of a winter torpor where you really haven't been eating a whole lot. These fish are going straight from the winter doldrums to nest building and guarding. They're vulnerable. 
Nest building usually occurs. I mentioned that. Males guard, nest, and fry. Smallmouth exhibit parental investment. This is described by Trivers 1972, a theory that predicts that parents will vary the care provided to their offspring in response to several factors. Because offspring become more valuable to the parent as they approach independence, parents should invest more and take greater risks protecting older offspring. However, because parental investment in current offspring is expected to reduce opportunities to invest in future offspring, parents should reduce care given to older offspring as the offspring becomes self-sufficient. Additionally, there's the Sargent and Gross 1986 model, which predicts that for fish such as basses, one should expect parental care activity to increase from the egg stage, peak at egg sac fry or swim up fry stage, and then decrease as the fry become free swimming, i.e. increasingly independent. Another example of parental investment definition in evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology is any parental expenditure, time, energy, etc. that benefits one offspring at a cost to a parent's ability to invest in other components of fitness and is thus a form of sexual selection. Components of fitness include the well-being of existing offspring, parents' future, future sexual reproduction, and inclusive fitness through aid to kin. Parental investment may be performed by both the male and female, known as biparental care, the mother alone exclusive maternal care, or the father alone exclusive paternal care. In smallmouth bass, it is exclusive paternal care. The nest is round with a downslope towards the center with a 5 centimeter to 10 centimeter depression in the center. We know that you don't fish for steelhead and salmon and trout on reds, so why would you fish for a nest on a red? I forgot to bring that up with Rebecca Red at some point about her last name being R-E-D-D, but she's too busy. We're going to try and get a podcast with her eventually. Note to self, ask her that question. Male uses a caudal sweeping movement, which is his tail, to excavate a saucer-shaped depression in coarse substrate. It's going to mess up his tail a bit. The male builds the nest in shallow waters of lakes and rivers on sand, gravel, rocky bottoms. You're going to hear some redundancy here. Males build nests usually two to four feet deep with spawning in late April to early June as temperatures exceed 60 degrees Fahrenheit. They require clean stone, rock, or gravel substrate on sand, gravel, or rubble bottom, even broken clamshells. The male leaves the nest to coax females to the nest. She will swim toward and away from the nest several times until she is ready. This is when you got to put on the underwater. Barry White. All right, folks, we're going to get this done tonight. All right. The male and female face each other until she moves to her side, releasing eggs adjacent to the male's vent. The vent is where his... uh, His male fluids come out of, the stuff that we've been getting covered with by perch, herring, and shad. That's the male spooge in technical terms. Kids, sorry if I just ruined uh, your dinner. Males then fertilize the eggs. 
They spawn on rocky lake shoals, river shallows, or backwaters to move into creeks and tribs. Nests are often located near rocky or wood cover to reduce wave or flow disturbance and limit entryways of egg and larval predators. You remove a fish from his nest, egg and larval predators will eat them all. Remember Finding Nemo? If you haven't seen the movie, turn it off for 20 seconds. There's a whole bunch of eggs that uh, Nemo's dad and his mom had, and then a barracuda comes and eats the mom, knocks out the dad. All the other fish come in and eat the eggs except for Nemo. Where am I? Habitat condition during spawning is the most important factor for year last strength. After the adhesive eggs are externally fertilized and laid in the nest, the male assumes guard duty. This is why you don't mess with him. He fans the eggs to prevent silt deposition, removes metabolic waste, and ensures good dissolved oxygen levels. Male will fan the eggs all day and night during his periods of rest at dark. This protects them against predators night and day. So remember I mentioned earlier smallmouth are inactive at night. Well, when the male's guarding his nest, he's guarding it and cleaning it all day. He's guarding it and maintaining it all night. He's guarding it from predators. He's keeping junk out of it. What is he not doing? Sleeping. What else is he not doing? Eating. This male is sacrificing himself physically to protect his progeny. Another reason you don't mess with them on their nests. The male protects both eggs and newly hatched fry, which are very dark in color, from numerous predators in the aquatic environment. Good water quality is essential during and for at least 30 days following spawning to obtain adequate recruitment or a strong year class of smallmouth bass. After surviving this critical period, the young must avoid predation, usually cannibalization, and grow large enough to endure their first winter. We're lucky enough at the Orvis Tyson store to have Tommy Mattioli's smallmouth bass colored clousers. Smallmouth eat each other. There you go. There's one hint. Once they become yearlings one year old, many will remain in the environment to provide good fishing for several years. The pair swim about the nest, rubbing... Oh, this is back to the the spawning. More information on spawning. The pair swims about the nest, rubbing and nipping at each other, and eventually come to rest on the bottom. The female can lay up to 21,100 eggs. Actual spawning occurs and lasts for five seconds. The pair then encircles the nest for about 25 to 45 seconds before settling to spawn again. This goes on for two hours. After spawning, the female leaves the nest and may spawn with another male in another nest. They are known to be promiscuous. So you, these bass, they're, they're like swiping left, swiping left, swiping left all day long. Or is it swiping right? I don't know these things. Parental care consists of fanning with pectoral and median fins and pivoting to detect rivals or predators. This protection continues over a variable time from as short as two weeks to as long as seven weeks following egg deposition. Seven weeks of guarding 24-7 through all environmental things with things trying to eat his babies. It's tough. 
Falling water levels may cause male to abandon the nest, limit water circulation around the egg, or increase predation. Males, oh, look, here's the facts. Before, it was just my opinion. Males do not eat during nesting, spawning, or guarding. Not eating makes them hangry. I put that word in there. Aggressive and can affect how they swim. Protracted periods of guarding may lead to an increase in post-breeding mortality. That's death. Removal of the guarding male for even a short period may allow egg predators to feed on the brood and may induce nest abandonment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Again, removal of the guarding male for even a short period may allow egg predators to feed on the brood and may induce nest abandonment. Angled males are less willing or less able to defend their broods than non-angled fish. And then I have in bold, do not target male fish guarding nests. Just don't. So let's talk about the life stages. Four life stages. Embryonic stage is when the fish has yet to exit from the egg. Fry stage is when they emerge from the egg. Fry are called fry until they become juveniles. Adults, when they reach sexual maturity. Embryos develop at 55.4 to 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Extreme temperature fluctuations can cause embryonic mortality from acute thermal shock. Extreme temperature fluctuations may cause males to abandon nests. Second spawn if sudden temp drop during first attempt. Ideal spawning conditions require one or more substantial rise in water levels a week or two prior to bass nesting. Smallmouth require relatively stable water levels while nesting. Rising waters may flush nest areas with cold water, causing desertion of male or embryonic growth to stop. Fertilized water-hardened eggs are semi-transparent with grayish-white to light amber yolks and are larger, 2 to 3.5 millimeters, than eggs of other species of Micropterus. Larvae becoming more pigmented and free-swimming 4 to 16 days after hatching and are 8.1 to 10.1 millimeters in length. The fry. The free-swimming larvae are referred to as black fry because of dark pigmentation. The highest rate of mortality as they can't escape predators fast enough. The morphological changes during development include formation of median and paired fins as the fish gradually metamorphosizes to an adult-like body shape and pigmentation at approximately 24 millimeters total length. The black fry initially remain in tight schools near the protection of the parental male and gradually expand the areas where they forage. During the daytime, 
They do that. At nighttime, however, the fry return to a tight school on the lake or stream bottom. The fry grow faster at higher temperatures, with activity dropping at 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Swimming activity drops at 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So if this is from 20, 30, 50, or maybe I just lied to you and it's two scientific papers, you're seeing these same temperatures again. Activity stops at 50. That's a fact, folks. That isn't my opinion. They seek rocky shelters in littoral areas when water is 44.6 degrees to 100 degrees. No, I'm sorry. They seek rocky shelters in littoral areas when water is 44.6 degrees Fahrenheit. 104 degrees Fahrenheit is the lethal range for the fry. There is high winter mortality of these fish at this age. Size of fish and length of hibernation determines their survival. They are vulnerable to floods, which we have not had this spring, which is kind of odd. I don't want to, you know, ruin things, but uh, we've had like one rainstorm in over two weeks. Rapid water level drop may trap them in pools. Desiccation, which is drying out or predation, will kill them. Stream rise of a few inches may displace advanced fry from their nest. Fish that are 20 to 25 millimeters can't maintain themselves in current velocities greater than 200 millimeters per second. Smallmouth fry are displaced at high turbidity. Reduced water temperature during floods will reduce swimming ability. They cease feeding when dissolved oxygen is less than one part per million. Levels greater than six parts per million are optimal. Then they graduate and they become juveniles. Juvenile smallmouth spend most of the time in quiet water near or under dark shelters, brush or rocks. Maximum growth is at 77 to 68 degrees Fahrenheit. 95 degrees Fahrenheit becomes the lethal range for juveniles. Activity below 73.4 is lethal. Growth of juvenile smallmouth bass stops at temperatures below 60.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Seek shelter in crevices at 7.8 degrees Celsius centigrade, which is convert 7.8 degrees Celsius to Fahrenheit. 46 degrees Fahrenheit. Siri says it's 46 degrees Fahrenheit. Thank you, Siri. The lower lethal range is around freezing. Now let's talk about feeding and behavior. If you are trying to catch something, you need to know what it eats. Unless you're a scumbag on the Potomac in D.C. and you're going to use a cast net. Smallmouth are opportunistic. They are visual feeders. Smallmouth bass feed on progressively larger invertebrates as they grow and their gape size increases. That's a bigger maw. Swimming speed increases and maneuverability increases. So the faster they are, the bigger their mouth, and the better they can maneuver, the more food they're going to chase. They exhibit strong, cover-seeking behavior and prefer protection from light in all life stages. Smallmouth bass may switch to piscivory, which means eating fish, depending on prey size, type, and density or availability. This is a pretty cool one right here. I was able to find in a scientific article the exact to the millimeter size crayfish that smallmouth prefer. I don't know if it's just that body of water, but if you're throwing a 10-inch crayfish, you might want to change things. I don't know what what this is. uh, This is millimeters. So if it's 10 inches, 
tarn feather me. In streams, small crayfish, 14 to 46 millimeter carapace length, may provide more than half of the trophic requirements of smallmouth bass adults. Again, smallmouth prefer crayfish from 14, that's 1-4, to 46, 46 millimeters. Take a ruler with you to the fly shop next time. Diet is influenced by abundance and availability of prey items. Smallmouth bass experience a niche shift, switching food preference from insects and zooplankton to crayfish and fish that causes competitive interactions with many other fish species. Feeding habitat is hunting macro fauna. Crayfish, this is another cool one, crayfish behavior is altered in the presence of smallmouth bass. Although larger crayfish greater than 25 millimeters carapace length are less affected and in the presence of smallmouth bass raise their calipeds or claws and fully spread their chelae in defensive posture reducing vulnerability. Smallmouth bass foraging behavior is well adapted for benthic prey using a biting technique. Using biting actions and combinations of suction, grasping, and jerking it to dislodge crayfish and other prey from a benthos. If they prefer to eat things on the bottom of the river or lake, throw things that sink. Adult bass feed mainly during the early mornings and early evenings, while young bass feed throughout the day and may feed at night, but most likely not. They will eat little or nothing in winter, living instead off fat reserves and feeding generally ceases at water temperatures below 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Ba-boom! That's the third time a scientific document has stated this. Smallmouth bass eat little or nothing in winter, living instead off fat reserves, and feeding generally ceases at water temperatures below 50 degrees. So what exactly do these fish feed on? Well, our fly boxes are crazy looking. The fly bins at the fly shop are crazy looking. There are things that we know these fish eat, but these are the preferred items from gut sampling from several scientific articles throughout North America. They have been seen eating tadpoles, fish, aquatic insects, crayfish. Anything that they could swallow, they will. They have been seen eating frogs, small mice, small birds, and even french fries. Hopefully not Burger King french fries. Those things are nasty. Carnivorous diet. Its diet comprises crayfish, insects, and smaller fish. The young also feed on zooplankton. The young feed on plankton and immature aquatic insects while the adults take in crayfish, fishes, and aquatic and terrestrial insects. Again, they are sometimes cannibalistic. They are preyed upon by fishes and turtles. They like to eat crayfish, helgramites, mayfly nymphs, and virile crayfish. Virile is a specific crayfish. What fish do they eat? They eat mad toms, perca flavicens, I think that's uh, yellow perch, johnny daughters, coho salmon, rainbow trout, sockeye salmon, chinook salmon, smallmouth bass, and mottled sculpins. I spent so much time trying to find gut contents, uh, stomach survey contents, what's in a smallmouth bass's stomach, and it all comes up to 
what they eat lure-wise. And just remember, if someone throws a soft plastic plastic bait in the water, smallmouth will eat it. It will get lodged in their digestive tract, causing a gut blockage. They will starve to death. Never throw your soft baits in the water. Some are biodegradable. I don't know how long that takes. If it can biodegrade in the gut of a bass, I don't know. But uh, that's what they like to eat. Commercial importance. One of the toughest fighting freshwater fish in North America. Smallmouth bass are taken for the table with fillets of white firm flesh when cooked. Let's talk about the environmental concerns before we wrap this up because I'm hungry. Uh, Things affecting smallmouth bass. Poor water quality. As again, we said they're like a canary in the coal mine. They're an indicator of water quality. Urban runoff. All the dog poop. All the stuff on your lawns. When you're at a traffic light, look down. All those cigarettes, they're leaching nicotine into the water. Um, All the exhaust from your cars. Remember in winter when it snows at first and it's all pure white snow and in five days it's black? That's what's going into the water. Plus all that magnesium chloride and sand. What's on our roads, what's on our lawns goes into the water. Don't forget when you urinate out pharmaceuticals or you flush your pills in the toilet, Carrie Matheson, I saw you do that on Homeland. Don't do that, Carrie Matheson. I'm going to talk to Saul. They, um, they're affected. That's why we have intersex species in our river. All of our male fish gots the ovaries. If you want a wet way to the river, you're going to get yourself ovaries. When Bart Simpson wanted to get out of class and he said, oh, my ovaries hurt. Well, he, he was wet wading too much. Tackle. Um, I like uh, a 9 foot 6 weight to a 9 foot 8 weight depending on the size I'm throwing. If you want to know what to target tackle wise for smallmouth, go back to the Pat Ellers podcast. Strangely enough, my new neighbor Max came over for uh, Rutherford Dad's Night last weekend and we started talking. He was wearing a sage hat and he's got a canoe. Figured he's an outdoorsman. He uh, His dad knows Pat Ellers. He moved from Milwaukee. And Max just got a duck hunting boat yesterday. So I'm going to go duck hunting this winter, hopefully. I want to see what that's all about. So for tackle, floating line if you're throwing topwater stuff. Sinking line, sink tip if you want to get down deep or intermediate. I could go off and just name Reapers, um, Murdoch's Minnow, My Tampon Fly, Damsels, Blue Damsels, Blue Popping Bugs, Boogle Bugs, Cork Bugs, Dahlberg Divers, Fruit Cocktails, Gutless Frogs, uh, Wooly Buggers, uh, various Helgramites, various Crayfish. I could go on and on and name what we have to sell in fly shops and online and from custom tires. Smallmouth are opportunistic. They're going to eat what you put in front of them unless they're not hungry, which I doubt. So where to find these fish? Uh, Best lakes for smallmouth are larger than 100 acres, more than 10 meters deep with thermal stratification and having clear water with vegetation and large areas of rock and gravel in depths less than 13 meters. In rivers... Look for quiet water, dark water, logs, rocks, 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 rock, 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 rock. They like structure. Flies again, similar smallmouth. Throw your flies with a non-slip mono loop. Give them more action. Poppers with a dropper behind it. You can't go wrong. They love crayfish. They love helgramites. They eat other fish. 
Clouser minnow was invented for smallmouth bass. My old boss, Crosby Bean, used to guide in central New York, western New York. He said the single best fly for a smallmouth bass is the Clouser minnow. We'll be tying Clouser minnows at the May Tidal Potomac Fly Rotters Beer Tie, tpfr.org. Also want to note, coming up this weekend is the 10th annual Project Healing Waters 2 Fly Tournament. So if it's not too late, if you want to throw some money, I'll put it this way. You put a fly rod in a disabled or wounded veteran's hand, they won't commit suicide. It's as easy as that. Throw some money towards Project Healing Waters. Let's get vets on the water. You will save a life. It is that simple. I will be podcasting from there. My plan is to get uh, our very special guest. I'll tell you who that is later, unless you're following me on social media. It looks like we're going to have a scotch tasting there as well. What else can I tell you? Jason and I, I'm I'm done with the small mouth. I'm just rambling now. I should pause and go put something in the oven. Jason came down for small mouth last weekend. He got a whole bunch of hickories. We saw a naked person on shore, most likely having sex with somebody else. There were so many fish in the river, it was nuts. All Jason was doing was just dangling his fly behind the boat, and he was hooking into hickories. Um, The shad run this year has been amazing. I am completely booked through the shad run, so if you want to book for next year, get a hold of me January, February, early March. It has been nuts, like I said. Um, Man, I've been on the river nonstop for three weeks now. I'm having moms at school pick up my kid, and my parents have to pick up my kid because I'm guiding four out of five weekdays, both weekends. I'm going to get the new buff sun mask tomorrow that has a little cape to go around and over your neck collar on your shirt so you don't have a gap. And that's about it for me. Look up uh, the Pat Ellers flies, Pat Cohen's flies, um, gutless frogs. And again, buy my flies. You want to support the podcast and support me? Buy flies. The prices are going up, folks. I'll tell you that. They are going to be going up soon just because uh, this is my job. I quit corporate life to do this. I don't want to go back to an office job in the fall. If you want to keep me employed as a guide, help me out. Help this podcast out. Buy some flies. Fly fishing consultant. Google it. RobSnowWhite.com. Go to the store. You can purchase flies by color, size, and weight there. Depending on how busy I am, the post office is two miles away, but I don't always get there daily. That is it. I'm going to peace out, go have uh, equal part mixed berry club soda and lemonade, and start tying my flies for the Project Healing Waters tournament. So Jason, good job producing this one. We might have something new for you down the line. Stay tuned. I'm out of here, folks. Fish ethically. Have fun. Tell people where you're fishing. Wear your sunscreen and go enjoy smallmouth bass because some knucklehead introduced them near where you are to enjoy them. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. media
life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep-sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.